the story so far in Romans is that everybody, all the world, is united in falling short of God's glory. However good we might be, however well behaved, we all fall short of God's glory. And so all the world is united in needing God's plan to rescue a people for himself, the gospel, to trust that gospel. And the last few weeks we've seen with Daniel, we've been thinking about, well, what what about Israel? If there is this message that we need to believe, this gospel that comes with Jesus, what about the people who came before Jesus? And what does that say about God's faithfulness? Can, Can we trust him? Does he change his mind and come up with different plans? What does that say about him? And we've seen, no, this has always been the plan, and he's, he's grafted in Gentiles into the olive tree of true Israel. And then our question is, well, now what? Where do we go from here? Paul, you've told us that the gospel is so important. We can see it's foundational, is vital. What do we move on to? What happens now? And Paul says, you don't move on. He says, you live it out. It goes into you deeper and deeper and changes how you live and your attitudes and what life is like for you. It changes your world. Now, I wonder if you were to type into Google this question, what do you think would come up? What changed the world forever? What kind of stuff do you think would come up? That's not rhetorical. I'm actually waiting for... (laughs) Have you tried? (laughs) Any other thoughts? Electricity? No. Television? No. Medical care? Medical care? No. Sliced bread? No. Six of the ten for the top ten was 9-11. That event changed the world forever. There are a couple of more general kind of thinking outside the box lists. The fact that we realise now the world is not round, that changed the world forever. That classical elements were not earth, fire, water and air. And so science comes. Mobile phones and YouTube make up the last two. See, there are just some things that change everything. 9-11 changed everything, the internet tells us. Changes things at a national or an international level, something like that, or at a personal level, at a local level. Changes your way of doing things, of what matters to you, what Monday morning is all about. And Paul says, God's grace and his mercy, his gospel changes how you do life, what matters to you. And over the next couple of chapters, he's got a number of different areas in mind that he will apply this grace and mercy into. So tonight, we are, in verses 1 to 2, we'll see something of the Christian and God focuses right in. Then he broadens it slightly in verse kind of 3 to 13, possibly 2 to 13. The church... Grace and mercy changes how you think about the church. And 3 to 8 within that is gifts, and 9 to 13 is kind of attitudes and how we treat each other. 
The next time we'll see something of the Christian and the world in verse 14 to 21. And then at the start of chapter 13, we'll see the Christian and the state, verses 1 to 7. Paul says, your faith is not just a private thing. It's not just about you and God. No, no, it's not even just about you and the church. It impacts how you live day to day, how you relate to the state, how you're a citizen of the world. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be bit by bit unpacking some of the implications of this massive gospel that he's spent 11 chapters thinking about. What does it mean for you on a Wednesday afternoon? What does it mean for your attitudes and your priorities and how you treat other Christians? How does the gospel work itself out? And what we'll see tonight is this. We will see that his grace and his mercy humbly transforms us. And we're going to look at three things. Firstly, it changes how we think about everything. That's kind of verse 1. And then verses 2 to 3, it changes how we think of ourselves. And then finally, verse 4 to 8, how we think about the church. The gospel is a game changer. And Paul won't let us just get away with it being something hypothetical. But it needs to be worked out in life. So verse 1, it changes how we think about everything. Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this is your true and proper worship. So we've had 11 chapters working through grace and mercy. His his faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his promises, his provision of a plan particularly, as Daniel said last week, his mercy in in grafting in Gentiles. I presume most of us from a Gentile background, we've been grafted in to the olive tree of Israel. Jesus dies on a cross to forgive us, and so we're brought back to him. We belong to him. He's offered himself for us. And so now we offer ourselves to him, which is why we don't belong to the world any longer. We don't have our allegiance and our values with the world, we're to be different. And so verse 1, you don't belong to you. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. So it changes our answer to the question, what is my life for? Because no longer is it about me and my self-fulfilment. And what can I get out of this? It's about him. It's how can I be a sacrifice for God? How can I serve him? And we rethink everything. Because every single moment matters. Because we're living sacrifices. Because it's all worship. It's very easy to slide into thinking that certain bits of the week are important for God. Or certain bits of my life are important for God. Or certain people are important. And no doubt as we meet together as a church family, there's something special going on. We hear from God and we praise, one another, we praise him and we encourage one another. And there is something special as Christians meet. But he doesn't just care about those bits. Because all of the week is about worship. In one sense, it's really easy to have a, have a sacred, secular divide. Because it means we think, well, well, that's God's time, 
And this bit here, this is me time. But Paul says that won't do. You are always a living sacrifice. All of life is now worship. So when you wash up, begrudgingly, that's God time. When you're at work, doing whatever it is you do through the week, maybe with your colleagues or your friends or your spouse or your enemies, that's God time. When you go to the lecture theatre, sit down in the library, sit in the exam room, that's God time. When you travel, when you use the internet, when you read, when you talk, when you rest, it's all God time. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Every single second of the week matters. Not just when you're at church. It's all to be holy and pleasing to God. God's grace and his mercy change how we think about the world. And notice it's not... It's not, well, do these nice things and then God will show you grace and mercy. It's not live a worshipful life and he'll show you that sort of stuff. It's no, no, because of his grace and mercy. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies. So it changes how we think about everything, particularly verse 2 to 3, how we think of ourselves. Now, before we get to these verses, just a bit of background in Romans. Um, you might remember, if you've been here for months, that back in Romans 1, Paul talked a lot about how we think, how the world thinks about our minds. And Paul said the sad story is the world is not neutral to God. No, no, truth is suppressed. People squash down what they see and what they know of God, because they don't want him to be there. We're not neutral, and so God gives them over, and there's this present judgment. He gives them what they want. He doesn't protect them from the things that they're, they're wanting. He gives them over in present judgment. And so their thinking becomes futile, becomes depraved, the word that he uses. And because we're joined up people, if our thinking goes wrong, then our actions go wrong too. And so they're altered. Let me just read you uh, 1 verse 28 and 29. Notice, just notice before we get there, notice that because our thinking is changed, so our actions are changed. 1 verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God... So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. Just notice two things about that, just in passing. Firstly, that our wills, our wills affect how we think. So people choose to suppress a knowledge of God. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Our wills can control our minds. 
because they don't want God to be God, they think it not worthwhile to retain a knowledge of him. So firstly, our wills affect how we think, but then secondly, our thinking affects our wills. Because they're given over to foolish thinking, then that is worked out in their lives. It's a, it's a positive feedback loop. It's a snowball effect, it seems to me. Wills control our thinking, so we choose to suppress our knowledge of God. And then our thinking controls our actions, so that we're increasingly wicked. It, this will and this mind thing is fascinating. And Paul says that is what the world is like. People suppress a knowledge of God, and that is worked out in life. And they suppress a knowledge of God and it is worked out in life. And that's the context. And Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Again, if you've been with us in Romans, you might think, ah, minds. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 5. Paul has already spoken of our minds. In Romans, he said this, he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So we have new minds. As a Christian, you have a brand new mind. A mind that is set on what the Spirit desires. A mind that is governed by life and peace. We are new creations with new minds. And yet we're still to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The grammar is go on being transformed. So you have this new mind already. But it needs to work its way out into life. A new way of thinking, he says, live that out. Change in line with your new minds. Work that through into life. Why? Well, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, verse 2, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather... Think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. As is a culture of of self-esteem crisis. If any of you work in teaching, I'm sure you'll have seen something of that or heard something of that in the kind of um, framework and thoughts about education at the moment. People don't know where to look for value and identity and esteem. And Paul says, look to God. But don't be arrogant. Don't compare yourselves with others. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Be thankful that he has given you gifts. You see, in church, says Paul, there is no room for pride. No room for thinking, well, well, I'm the best at this. I'm better than them at that. He says, no, train yourself. Change how you think. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind And remember that God is the one who distributes gifts. He gives you grace. Look to the one who is the giver rather than the gifts themselves. 
something great we need to train ourselves out of. The comparison game that we've been talking about on Sunday morning. The ability that we have to, to sort of have these ladders and these league tables. Where do I come in this in terms of my gift? You know, think of yourselves with sober judgment. I think it works for us as a church as well. If you were around for the church meeting um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a general positivity as to how we're doing at church. People talked of the church blossoming, of how stuff was going well. There are uncertainties and there are changes, but, but we seem to be flourishing in lots of ways. You look back over the last 12 months and you'll see we've grown in number. See, there are people who have become Christians. See, that people have grown in maturity and godliness. There's lots to be excited about. But don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, says Paul. Think of yourselves with sober judgment. Remember that lovely story in the Gospels where Jesus sends out the 72 the disciples on mission and, and it goes very well. And they come back and they are buzzing. This has been a fantastic mission week. And what does he say to them? Luke 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in in your success. Rejoice in your status. Don't rejoice in the gifts that you have. Rejoice in the one who has given them to you. And to do that, we need to transform minds because the culture all around us is well, compare and brag about what you've done and boast. They are to go on being transformed by the renewing of their minds. And that means that church is going to be very different. Verse 4 to 8. Two things we'll see there. Everyone is different, but everyone is essential. Firstly, everyone is different. Verse 4, for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function. Or verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Everyone is different. Have a look at yourself. You've got hands. You've got feet. You've got arms and legs and a nose. You've got ears and knees. I assume you've got toes under those shoes, you've got ankles, you've got necks, teeth, eyebrows, fingernails, eyelashes. And do they all do the same thing? No. Of course not. Have you tried writing with your nose? Kids, don't try that. Have you tried smelling something with your hand? No. No, no, we're different. We don't have the same function. We we do different stuff. And so that means in church, you can be yourself. Isn't that good news? Isn't that liberating? You look around the room and we see so many different gifts. Kitty on guitar. Charlie with that brain of his. Rachel the evangelist. 
techie people who do things with PA and films and that kind of stuff. And you don't have to be like them. Isn't that great? God doesn't want you to be like them. He wants you to be like you, the way that he's made you. God has made you and has given you those gifts. And that was his plan. And that is such good news. You're not to be like them sat over there. You're to be like you. We work as a body together with many parts. But they don't have the same function. God has given you gifts to serve his body. You don't have to be what you are not. But you do have to be what you are. Maybe it raises questions, well, what am I? What is my part to play in the church family? How has God gifted me? It's a great question to ask. Maybe if, you, if you're not sure, then grab somebody who knows you and who loves you. If you're part of a home group, then speak to your home group leader, a friend who can help you out. You see, everyone is different. God has gifted us differently, deliberately. Because that's how a body works. But it's vital that you know what you do because everyone is essential, secondly. Verse 5, So in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. The thing about bodies is you need each other. If a bit is missing or it is broken or out of action, then the body doesn't work quite as well. If someone goes AWOL for weeks, then we all suffer. I say this carefully, if you're away for weekend after weekend after weekend, or home group after home group after home group after home group, then, then the rest of us suffer. Because we all need you. Everyone is essential. It's how bodies work. Without ears, you can't hear. That weakens the body. Without a singer, you end up with me at the front. And that would be hideous. So it's a challenge, isn't it? Because sometimes we just don't feel like going to church. We'd rather stay and watch TV or do something else on our home group night, or whatever it might be. The, the formal stuff, when we'd just rather not bother. Or the informal stuff, when we don't really want to do hospitality or we, we can't be bothered with this kindness to that person again and yet everyone is essential that's how we work because you know the gifts that God has given you are for us it's striking isn't it it's like having a birthday present it's Josh's birthday yesterday Imagine we give him this pile of presents on our bed at 7 o'clock in the morning and he opens each one and we say, ah, that's for your brother and that's for your sister and that's for me, I chose just what I wanted and that's for, for your mum, none of them are for you. But it seems to me that's what's going on in the passage here, that God gives different members gifts but they're for everybody else almost not even for them. 
There's an exception there which you can grab me about afterwards. And actually, it's worse than that. It's not just that you are essential to the rest of us. I'm afraid you are owned by the rest of us. Verse 5. And each member belongs to all the others. If you were here this morning, you'll know that that's a verse that's really struck me this week. We're used to being part of a club. We're used to being members that join something bigger. But it's not actually that we join a bigger club here. We, we belong to everybody else. And that makes us quite uncomfortable, doesn't it? You belong to me, and I belong to you. And that's how this family works. Your gifts are for me, and my gifts are for you. And it all feels a bit claustrophobic. In a society that struggles with commitment, we struggle with this idea, what do you mean I belong to you, or I belong to all of them? We don't like that very much, but it seems to me that's how God has designed it. Verse 5, and each member belongs to all the others. That's what the church is really all about. That's why we need our thinking to be renewed and transformed. Because this is not really the kind of thinking that goes on in the world. Each member belongs to all the others. And then he lists these different gifts. The gifts that the Lord Jesus gives his church for the good of everybody else. Verse 6. Let me read them through again. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If serving, then serve. If teaching, then teach. To encourage, give encouragement. If it's giving, give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. It's not a comprehensive list of spiritual gifts. There are many others mentioned in the New Testament and I'm not even sure really what some of them are about. But we're going to zoom through them, kind of bird's eye view, uh, as to what these gifts are and how they work. So verse 6, first of all, prophesying. The best definition I come across for prophecy is spirit-inspired wisdom for the building up of the church. Maybe it's, maybe it's just opening the Bible with somebody and explaining it in, in a way that that cuts them open. You speak more than you know. Maybe it's that sense of what to say and when and to whom and you're not quite sure where it came from but, but that was the Lord just speaking through you to them in a conversation. You hit the nail on the head just what that person needed to hear and you say, well, I didn't know what I said. Spirit-inspired wisdom for the building up of the church. Serving, verse 7. And we all serve, but some brilliant people just have that energy and that steadfastness and the heart to serve and to love others. Just to quietly get on with stuff. To keep going. Often the context, I think, from the word is helping others in need. Visiting the folk who are sick or are hurting or in trouble. 
And in one sense, they're anonymous, they're invisible, but they are absolutely crucial. And for whatever reason, when they're out of the picture, you suddenly realise the church is falling apart and crumbling without them. Because these servers have gone. Verse 7, teaching. Teaching is when you know that when you go to that person to answer your question, you will get the answer that you understand. They seem to have a, have a way of making something very complex to be very simple, very clear. The, the opaque and the confusing suddenly becomes understandable for mere mortals. Verse 8, encouragement. We live in a broken world, it's painful, it's discouraging. And so we need encouragers to keep us going. To keep us pressing on, to keep us pointed to Christ. To to remind us of all that he's done for us. To be thankful for him. And they just have the right word to, to keep us pressing on. That they're the oil in the church that keeps the members working. That keeps the church functioning. I think we need more encouragers. I think our um, type of church, we're not very good at encouraging. People who dare to speak up and dare to say thank you. Or who dare to, to say, that was really helpful, thank you. Our world is very good at picking things apart and criticising and critiquing rather than building up. But I wonder whether there's a challenge for me particularly. We're not to be conformed to the world's ways. We're to be encouragers. Giving, verse 8. Next one is giving. Some people struggle and fight and really want to hold on to the stuff that God's given them. That might be money, that might be time, that might be things. They can't help it. They just want to cling to it and find it so hard to, to have their fingers prized open. But others just have this gift of being free and generous and lavish and and they're always thinking, how can I give more? How can I help others? How can I bless them? There's a gift of giving. It doesn't mean we don't all have to give. I think we all do. We should all be giving to support the, the work of the kingdom, to support church and churches and to give the Lord access to our our wallets and our our bank accounts. But it just seems there are some who are gifted in such a way as to be extra generous, lavish with the stuff that God's given them. Leading. Leading is a gift that God gives his church to grow it. Not necessarily leading so that others will follow. It may just be the ability to solve problems, to put in structures and systems and to help the church grow and flourish. And how are leaders to lead? They're to do it diligently. They're to work hard. They're to keep going. They're to press on. Even when it's a struggle. Even perhaps when results are small to keep leading. And finally, it's mercy, verse 8. Notice, we've been shown mercy. 
God has been merciful to us. We were helpless, we were in need of rescue. We were unable to help ourselves and God comes and he meets our needs. And so as the body functions, there will be those folk who are in need of mercy too. Those folk who who are merciful to others. Think of some very faithful people at Maudlam Road who spend lots of time with, with hurting people. Folk who are ill or depressed or people in hospital or just for whom life is hard. I think we've got a number who are good at showing mercy. The danger, though, it seems, is that people can be tired and deflated and exhausted. As if you're spending time with folk who need mercy the whole time, then it can be wearing. Paul says, do it cheerfully. Remember that you've been shown mercy. And there you will find the resources to keep being merciful to others. Where do you fit? What are your gifts? Has your grasp of grace and mercy changed how you think about church? You see, the danger is we just come along and we just consume. I've used this before and I make no apologies because it's one of my favourite illustrations for church. But people often say we rock up to church and it's a little bit like a restaurant. And you come in, you're saying where to sit, you get what you came for, and then you go home again. And you're a bit grumpy if it didn't go quite as you wanted. Maybe the sermon was too long, or the songs were too loud, or the tea was too tepid. And yet the reality, it seems to me, is much more like a family meal. That's what church is like. And so you come in, and you lay the table because you burn most things. But somebody else has been cooking all day. They have an encyclopedic knowledge of Delia and Nigella and Jamie, and they are the cook. Somebody else has been doing puddings. They've been baking cakes. And then someone else goes round the house and looks for the extra chairs. Someone comes and and they polish the, the cutlery, and somebody else is polishing glasses. And then after the meal, somebody else is washing up. And others jump in and help with the drying. And then somebody who knows where stuff goes, well, well, they then put stuff away in cupboards. It's a family meal when we come to church. It's everyone playing their part. We're not at a restaurant. And so Paul says, change how you think. This, this grace and this mercy from God is an absolute game changer. Changes how you think of your week. All of your life is worship. Changes how you think of yourself. Because he is the one who gives gifts. And so it changes how you think of church. We're all different. But we're all essential. We're at a family meal. We're not at a restaurant. Let's pray.